A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. That Will Chamberlain game in 1962, so much of it is hazy and legendary because there isn't a lot of people who were there and there weren't a lot of stats and numbers. And Harvey Pollack wrote on a sheet of paper, 100 held it up, and that is the iconic photo. It's not filled with launch angles and how many shots per second. Sometimes less is more for an appreciation of the sport. And if you love the sport, certainly listening to stories about that game, about Will Chamberlain, about Harvey Pollack, and how he got the story of that game across in Hershey, Pennsylvania on that March day in 62, I guess I've always been interested, again, growing up listening to Dick Enberg and Vince Scully and Chick Hearn and Kirk Gowdy. These are the people that influenced me and wanted me to get a direction in life where I would follow them. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So I'm getting first bumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 86. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Elliot Kolb to the show. In the 1990s through early 2000s, Elliot didn't often appear on camera. However, he was a vital cog in the mighty NBA on NBC machine. We cover a wide variety of topics and he shares plenty of great stories about his life and the experiences he's had with a who's who of talent for more than 30 years. Elliot very kindly offered to join me a second time to discuss his three favorite NBA on NBC games, one of which was Jordan's comeback game at Indiana in 1995, and I've added that towards the end of this conversation. Towards the end of the episode, I'll share another great podcast review. You can add yours by visiting inallairness.com slash review. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics covered, are at inallairness.com slash 86. Now, on to the show. My guest today is a multiple sports Emmy winning producer, writer and television personality. He has worked in sports TV for more than 35 years, including more than two decades with NBC, where he was known as Mr. Stats. Currently, he is the Senior Editorial Director of MLB Network. Elliot Kalb, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure, Adam. Really uh, appreciate you making time to speak with me today, and I'm excited to talk with you. Uh, Now, in the acknowledgments of your 2003 book, which is called Who's Better, Who's Best in Basketball, uh, which I'll definitely ask you about later on, you lovingly thanked your parents for taking you to your first NBA games at the Great Western Forum in the early 1970s. Growing up in Southern California, uh, what do you remember of those games and then also listening to the great Chick Hearn? 
Chick Hearn taught me the game of basketball, or I should say NBA basketball, because I was a fan of two teams when I was growing up in California. I was a fan of UCLA basketball. Dick Enberg called those games, and I would watch those great teams, the Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe, Bill Walton, Greg Lee, and I loved UCLA, but I loved the Lakers, and I was so rewarded, not only with a great UCLA team, but a great championship Laker team. I grew up with the radio in my ear. The transistor radio was the greatest birthday present my parents ever gave me. And to uh, listen to the 71-72 was the first year I caught the tail end of the uh, 71 season. And Adam, I'm going to tell you what I told Marv and all the graphics people. But when I talk about a season, I'm not going to say 71-72. I'm just going to call it the 1972 season, Mm -hmm. the season that the championship game is played in. Now that I'm uh, also involved in other sports, it's clumsy, the 71-72 or 2008-2009 season. So I'm just going to say the 72 season was the first one I remember, and I remember so much about those great uh, Laker teams. You talk about having the perfect pedigree to be an NBA fan. So Chick Hearn and Dick Enberg taught me basketball when I was a teenager, and then we moved in. my family moved in 1973 when I was about 13, so I would listen and watch Marv Albert do the Knicks games, and then in 1979, went to the University of Massachusetts, where I got the full flavor of the Celtics-76ers rivalry. So between the Lakers and the Knicks and the Celtics-Sixers, you couldn't have asked for a better, uh, well-rounded NBA education, I guess you could say. Absolutely. And Dick Enberg was certainly one of the gentlemen that you worked with uh, when you get to NBC many years later. How did you first develop your love of numbers and statistics? You know, I always wanted to work in sports and I created a niche. Uh, I'm not a, a mathematician or a statistician by trade. I just find I'm more interested in the stories and the, the background stories. And sometimes we tell stories with numbers. Sometimes we tell it with other ways. But I got to be honest, I don't like looking at spreadsheets and and data analysis, and I, I would go crazy. You think sometimes there's so many numbers. That Will Chamberlain game in 1962, so much of it is uh, hazy and legendary because there isn't a lot of people who were there, and there weren't a lot of stats and numbers. And Harvey Pollack wrote on a sheet of paper, 100, 100, held it up, and that is the iconic photo. It's not filled with launch angles and how many shots per second and how many times on the double team. Sometimes less is more for an appreciation of the sport. And if you love the sport, certainly listening to stories about that game, about Will Chamberlain, about Harvey Pollack, and how he got the story of that game across in Hershey, Pennsylvania on that March day in 62, I guess I've always been interested, again, growing up listening to Dick Enberg and Vince Scully and Chick Hearn and Kirk Gowdy. These are the people that influenced me and and wanted me to uh, get a direction in life where I would follow them. In our email correspondence, you actually said that when you were at the University of Massachusetts, uh, about 95% of the, the student body were were from Massachusetts, and almost all of them were Celtics fans. So um, at that time, you're following the Philadelphia 76ers. I had to be contrarian. When they would argue Bill Russell was the greatest, <laughs> I would argue Will Chamberlain. We stayed up many nights in our dorm, uh, my friends Gary and Scott and myself. And so I was always taking the Lakers side. And whenever they would be rooting for the Celtics, of course, and I probably uh, erroneously, I thought most Celtic fans rooted for them in Massachusetts because it's the color of the, of the skin of the great athletes on Boston. 
uh, as opposed to, let's say, Philadelphia or Los Angeles. So I was always a, a Sixers fan against the Celtics, um, but I remember the beat L.A. in Boston Garden when the Sixers finally breaking through in a Game 7 at Boston Garden. It all started for me going to games at the Fabulous Forum, obviously Madison Square Garden. I went to some games at the Boston Garden and then would later work there, and it really was a magical place. In 1994, I was on an NBA tour with some other Australians, and we did go to a couple of the iconic arenas, uh, the Great Western Forum. We saw the Lakers and Hornets. Uh, we went to Boston Garden and saw the Celtics take on the Golden State Warriors. And then I was also at Chicago Stadium before that was obviously demolished uh, the following year to see the Bulls, although Jordan had been retired at that stage, which was unfortunate to say the least. And I had been to Madison Square Garden too, so it's some fantastic arenas and I can only imagine some of those experiences that you've had. Now, courtesy of the fantastic details that you provided before we chatted today, uh, and I really appreciate that, um, you said that your first job out of college was with NBA Films, which later would become NBA Entertainment. Uh, your boss was a former guest of my show, the great Don Sperling. Um, when you joined NBA Films, there was barely a handful of people that worked there. You're a tape logger. Do you mind just describing the role a little bit more for our listener, Elliot? Yeah, it later became NBA Entertainment, but at the times it was still called NBA Films, and this was 1984, and there was only about six of us, and Don Sperling, who I heard on your uh, wonderful podcast, and it brought back a lot of memories. Literally, like you told me in Australia, teams would send us uh, videotapes of the NBA games, uh, because otherwise there was no way for them to be in New York in one place. So we got three-quarter inch tapes, we put them in a three-quarter inch machine, and I would spend my days looking through games. I'd say, oh, I got a Denver-LA game, that's great. And I'd be looking for highlights, great plays, bloopers, uh, cutaways, because we would be doing features for USA Network, which uh, shared the national TV rights. Finally, I got to a point where I got to do my first feature to this song of just once. It was a schmaltzy romantic song, but I used it in slow motion shots of uh, Dabra, Bob Lanier. But I would be literally logging tapes. But one story that I got to tell you, it was $200 a week. We'd work many hours. And I also worked on the weekends for NBC Sports where I had been an intern. And NBC, you weren't allowed to touch the machine. There were editors and they were unionized. They had a union name. And when I told them where I worked, they said, well, you should really be union. And they introduced me to the people. And I literally tried to unionize NBA films. And uh, David Stern, who was not yet commissioner, but going to be commissioner, mm -hmm. of course, he was the general counsel and longtime uh, person with the league, calls me into his office on uh, the very intimidating. I'm a 21, 22-year-old kid. <laughs> Uh, on Fifth Avenue overlooking St. Patrick's, and he says, uh, you piss me off. We could do this thing in Portland, and there'd be a line a block and a half long of people who wanted to work. <laughs> I said I'd be among them if it was unionized, and I tell that story because that was in 1984. I probably saw David uh, Stern about three, four years ago, 30 years after that initial meeting. It was at a something honoring... Bob Costas or Marv Albert, and both were there. Commissioner Stern, who was retired by this time, says, yeah, Elliot, I know you're in baseball now, but you were always one of our guys, always one of our guys. And I loved that. Uh, I was courtside at every NBA Finals for 13 years and every NBA All-Star game. 
and I truly loved the league. I loved it as a kid. I love it now. Uh, my boys love it. So um, sometimes you have to stand up for yourself, and it was $200 a week, and I don't think I got much more than that. Eventually, I left, and I went to NBC in 1987 to do baseball, and then fortunately for me and for Marv Albert, who also worked for NBC, uh, NBC acquired the rights to the NBA for the uh, 1990-91 season. Fantastic stories here, and thank you for sharing that one about David Stern too. It's great to see how uh, that had changed from your early meetings to only as of a few years ago. Just fascinating stuff. Now, you mentioned the legendary Marv Albert there. He was, uh, amongst many other things, the voice of the New York Knicks for more than 30 years. When did you actually first meet Marv? Was it before you got to work through MSG Network and then NBC Sports? How how did that come to be? Yeah, I I got to know him in the mid-'80s both at NBC and MSG Network. And then when I joined NBC in 87, yes, I did baseball, but then I also did college basketball with Marv Albert and Bucky Waters, and they would do college basketball games. And and, uh, sometimes I would work Nick games with Marv doing stats. I always had the ability to make him laugh, and he always had the ability to make me laugh. (laughs) Can I tell you my favorite Marv Albert story? Oh, absolutely. Please do. All right, the 1997 NBA All-Star Game commemorated the 50th anniversary of the NBA. Uh, They named the 50 greatest players who were all given leather jackets. I'm sure you've seen footage. That's right, yeah, in Cleveland. Game was played in Cleveland. Gundarina at the time. During that uh, week, if I remember right, there were tense negotiations to renew the NBA rights. Dick Ebersol approached Marv several hours before the game. No funny stuff, Marv. Nothing too controversial. Uh, we basically got it, but another network's offering the same, maybe more money. The deal's basically done, but the T's aren't crossed. No funny business. So that's all I had to hear. So before the game, an NBA rep comes up to me and gives me this sheet. The press release tells me how the MVP voting is conducted. Uh, there's nine votes, including one from NBC sports. And for the first time, a French media entity, this time the French newspaper L'Equipe would get a vote. So I tried to tell Marv this, but he was busy. He told me to put it on a card and give it to him at the appropriate time. (laughs) Now, Glenn Rice had 20 points in the third quarter. Michael Jordan had the first triple-double in All-Star Game history. And I give Marv the following note. Nine media entities get a vote for the All-Star MVP. For the first time, the French newspaper L'Equipe gets a vote. And strangely enough, Jerry Lewis is leading the voting. (laughs) Now, you have to be old enough to know. And 20 years, 25 years ago when this joke was told. So anyway, Marv is laughing because Jerry Lewis, the famed writer, the late great actor, was adored by the French. But it made Marv laugh. But he couldn't laugh on the air. And he's fighting it. And Bill Walton next to him is laughing and trying to make him laugh. And I looked at the footage uh, again recently. It's just, it's my favorite Marv story because whenever I could try to uh, needle Marv because he was always so good. He gave me the nickname Mr. Stats, just like he gave Mike Fratello, czar of the Telestrator, and those things have, have lasted. It's a branding, but he's he's a genius and the best play caller. Uh, I worked football games with him, very underrated boxing, college basketball. He's just a, a terrific announcer. A French newspaper taking part in the MVP voting, and the votes are coming in. They voted for Jerry Lewis. <laughs> I love that story. I'm not totally up to date with uh, Jerry Lewis's career over here in Australia, but I'm of course aware of him. Uh, I can only imagine how uh, he would have been trying to withhold his laughter there. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, 
Mike Fratello, actually speaking of, is a former guest on the show, and he also did uh, retell the story of how Marv dubbed him the Czar of the Telestrator. Um, how early into your tenure working with Marv did he call you Mr. Stats? Because it's perfectly suited and one that he'd often drop when he'd mention you in telecast for years to come. Yeah, Mr. Stats himself. Yeah, no, it was uh, <laughs> it was terrific. It really was him to come up with it, just like he came up with Czar, and he would do that for different people, and it, it created like a family atmosphere. It was great. Statistician, Mr. Stats, Elliot Cowell. Marv and Mike, probably my two favorite callers of the games. They just worked so beautifully together. Um, and as you said, their sense of humor and their, their wit would often uh, keep those broadcasts going so smoothly. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, even to this day, I go back and watch. I've got a lot of games in my collection and uh, I love the NBC calls. If you like the Czar and Marv, you have to like a Madrasad as well. Oh, absolutely. What can you sort of tell us about uh, the great Ahmad Rashad? So many Ahmad Rashad stories. And I just saw him in Cooperstown, New York. He came to honor Bob Costas, who was given the Frick Award and is in Baseball's Hall of Fame. And Ahmad uh, was there, and I got to see him and spend some time with him. Um, Ahmad, by the way, is the greatest athlete, athlete, period, that I've been around. Wow. People don't realize what a great football player he was, college and pro, as a wide receiver. Then. He takes up golf, and he's, he's brilliant in, in two years. He takes up tennis. He's a great tennis player. He was a great track star in college. He played basketball with Michael Jordan where, I mean, I've seen it. I can't believe how good he looks now at his age, but just a tremendous athlete. But anyway, it must have been our first season working NBA on NBC, and this was 1991. We didn't stay at five-star hotels in the beginning, so we're in Chicago this huge Hyatt Regency, which was often the place for conventions. And the weekend we were there, there was a convention for recovering drug addicts. They were taking over the hotel. There were, I can't even imagine how many. So there were these large open glass elevators that must have accommodated 40 or so people. So this hotel was happened to be so crowded that there might have been 60 or 70 people <laughs> in an elevator. You're pressed up against each other. Everybody's smoking cigarettes because they're recovering addicts. You can't breathe. And me and Ahmad are trying to get down to a meeting. And some of the recovering addicts who are guests at the hotel notice Rashad and they say, hey, Ahmad, I didn't know you were one of us. <laughs> and and that was the last time we stayed at a Hilton. We were, boom, at Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton's the rest of the way. And I thank Ahmad for that. That's fantastic. Another good story with Ahmad with me. In 1995, we're in San Antonio late in the season. And I had prepared my 10 to 15 pages of notes that I – give to producers and, and announcers, and Ahmad gets it too. Some of the notes, uh, if you know me, and you'll get to know me over this, they're not always positive notes if you get my drift. <laughs> not everything was great about every, not everybody was, you know, some of the notes were negative about players. And so Ahmad, 10 minutes before the game, comes over to the table and he addresses me and Marv. He goes, hey, guys, we got a problem. What's the problem? David Robinson's in the clubhouse reading Elliot's notes and making fun of Sean Elliott, and, and Sean isn't taking it so well. I, I guess I had written that, you know, only three rebounds a game. There hasn't been a starting forward who plays that many minutes, blah, blah, blah. Worst rebounding forward ever, whatever whatever it was. <laughs> I'm guessing what it was. I You know, he was on a team with David Robinson and Dennis Rodman, so they didn't really need the small forward Sean Elliott to get rebounds. But I, I started getting nervous. I go, how did David Robinson get a copy of this that he's making fun of Sean Elliott? 
Ahmad said he accidentally left them in there after talking to him. <laughs> so <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm worried, and, and, and Ahmad is getting me into trouble there. But that's Ahmad Rashad. That's great stuff. Um, now, just a quick detail here. Whilst basketball is the main topic, obviously, for our conversation, uh, researching for our chat, I came across a, an LA Times article about Game 1 of the 1988 World Series. And I'll just quickly set this up, and I'd love to hear your take on it. Um, apparently, prior to Jose Canseco's second inning at bat, you and an associate producer, I think his name's Jeff Simon, uh, put up a graphic on the NBC telecast. To that point, Jose had never hit a grand slam. Um, I'm sure you could probably describe what happens next. Yeah, yeah, we picked the Grand Slam in Vegas. Sometimes everything you play comes up, and this is what happened to us that night. And in an age before social media and before everybody knew everything, all of a sudden people were, uh, you know, just loving the graphics that were put up on this NBC telecast. It was the first World Series game I had ever been to. It was at the stadium that I had first gone to as a young uh, kid, it still remains with some of the Jordan moments from the mid nineties. Uh, one of the great sporting events and, and great moments, the Kirk Gibson home run. I can't believe it's been 30 years and, uh, Vince Scully, uh, on the call, famous call. And, and he was such a master at laying out, letting the crowd tell the story after Kirk Gibson hits the home run. You know, Vinny was just brilliant in a year of the, uh, improbable, the impossible has happened. And it seemed to capture uh, everything. So, but I was there, and it, it was just uh, one of the highlights of my career. Yeah, I'm glad that I uh, picked that little tidbit out there. That's great. Thanks for uh, retelling that. And if I'm not mistaken, as well, you were a personal statistician for the great Finn Scully as well. I'm not sure for how many years there, but just briefly before we get back to the the basketball chat, how was that to work with an absolute all time great who called for the best part of seven decades? Working with Vin was a, a dream come true, and I worked with him the last three years of NBC's Game of the Week from 87 to 89, and then in 1990, we remained friendly enough that he was calling the World Series for National CBS Radio, and he invited me to go to the games. I didn't even have to work. He was calling them with Johnny Bench. I went to a couple of the games, and I've, I stayed in touch with him, and the last 10 years working baseball games with Bob Costas, I would make it a point of doing Dodger games and making a pilgrimage, making a visit out to Vin. And we, we talked a, a couple of times. We talked earlier a few months ago. Someone who had worked for him doing stats the last 10 years was moving east, and he asked if I could help them and had spoken highly of, of me to this uh, gentleman. And Vinny is, is a class guy, class announcer, and it was, it was great uh, to work with him. I've worked with a lot of, you know, I've worked with Bob Costas for 30 years and, and Marv. Marv and Bob have more of my sensibilities, more of my sense of humor and the stuff that I write. I could write it for them in their voice. Marv will complain to Bob. The trouble with Elliot is uh, he gets insulted if you don't use everything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he told me that just, just recently. But uh, yeah, I've, I've been very, very fortunate. Some fantastic experiences. Um, now, as you said a bit earlier, you were courtside at every NBA All-Star game and finals game for 13 years through the, the NBC run and I think one year with ESPN or, or ABC. Yep. Um, among that decade-plus run is a streak, uh, according to your notes there, it was 66 consecutive finals games and 11 straight All-Star games. And you also witnessed more than 100 of Michael Jordan's playoff games. Now, I could go one of about a 1,000 different ways here with this next question, but um, I have personal favorite all-star games myself and i'm sure you would likely 
have one that might uh, spring to mind. Is is there one all-star game uh, to begin with that uh, resonates with you most? You know, there's a lot of them. I can imagine. The, the first one I called was in Charlotte, and the players still played to win, and it was a very competitive game. Marv had just lost his mother, so he didn't call the game. It was Bob Costas, and I had to help Bob prepare for that game. And it was uh, it was like the dream team intramural scrimmage a year before. So that 91 game was special. There was nothing as special as the 92 All-Star game with Magic. Mm. Uh, I would work the 92 finals with Magic. He would be someone I would work celebrity golf with because he knew me. So when he worked for NBC on the celebrity golf, they that, that led to me working on the Lake Tahoe Celebrity Golf for about 12 years. But the All-Star game in 1992 in Orlando, Dick Enberg called that game. I was courtside for that. Uh, you got to remember in 1991, November of 91, when Magic was stricken with the, uh, the HIV, we thought it was a death sentence. Mm. Everybody. It was a moment that shocked the world uh, that a, a generation before me was shocked when I wrote a FoxSports.com uh 15 years after the magic announcement that it, it was like to an older generation when the news of President Kennedy was assassinated. And a lot of people loved the article. A lot of people were, were critical of me for equating this because uh, some blamed magic for the lifestyle. But he served so much good in subsequent years, and he became such a role model. You know, magic made it impossible to be anything but your best friend. He shared stories about his wife telling me he was gambling too much and she's getting it was like he was like a regular guy how could that be mm. you know 91 92 90, this was shortly after the diagnosis 92 we game one in chicago portland the game's in chicago and i think he flew by private plane back because his uh, son ej was born and they didn't know until after the son was born whether he would have the disease and thankfully he he didn't and, and everybody was healthy and remains that way. But that 92 All-Star game was probably very special. And, and then some of the others were, you know, you remember Kobe, a young Kobe in New York. There's so many great memories in all of them. But 92 with Magic hitting the shot was right up there. Three-pointer. Yes! Oh, my! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you just can't Great to hear Dick Emberg on the call. Uh, some tremendous memories. Um, you mentioned how you were helping uh, Bob Costas in the lead-up to the 91 All-Star Game in Charlotte. I know you mentioned you said 10 to 15 pages of notes, but in terms of an All-Star Game and, and the first one that NBC would be broadcasting in the 90s, what was involved behind the scenes uh, for you there, Elliot? Well, with Bob, who had not been used to calling basketball games, I helped him put together a chart, like a depth chart, like that Marv used. I used Marv's charts as a model, and I helped him put the 12 guys from the east on one side and the 12 guys from the west on the other. And from my notes, he was able to fill in stuff on and each and then a foul was called, I would point on his chart to, let's say it was, you know, foul on 23 Jordan, and I would hold up one finger or two fingers if it was his first foul or if it was his second foul. It wasn't like I had worked hundreds of games with Marv. So with Bob, we just had to go over certain things for that 91 game. So it was it was a little bit more preparation and work, but a professional like Bob 
you feel like the pilot is totally in, in command at all times because he is. He is just a genius at broadcasting. He's absolutely phenomenal. In the info that you gave me, you were talking about how you'd often be taking notes whilst guys like uh, Ahmad Rashad or, or Mike Fratello, Marv Albert, uh, even Doug Collins were talking to, to Jordan or a litany of other NBA players. You'd then weave that information into the broadcast of a game. Um, how did you develop that, that process throughout your tenure with, with the NBA on NBC in particular, uh, given that Prior to about 1994 or 95, the internet wasn't really even a thing that we can obviously now turn to with great sites like basketballreference.com. Yeah, I remember at some point in the early to mid-90s when there was first NBC.com, they asked for my notes if they could put it up online, and of course I said yes. But we would talk to several of the players the day before the game, and they would tape sound bites, and the producer, Tommy Roy, would get them into the game Michael Jordan would talk only the day of the game. So the producer, sometimes they were busy. And so I would have to take notes. You know, even the stuff that wasn't cut into a soundbite to be used could be used for other purposes and was good background information. You know, if you're talking to a coach who's not available, who's banged up, things like that. But I do remember there was a point in the uh, mid-90s, it was a Christmas Day game. We're in Chicago and they set up a little studio in one of these small closets. It's like a not even a locker room. And they had all these lights and I was taking notes. Marv was talking to Scotty Pippen and, and and all of a sudden Pippen left the room tripping over the lights. It fell on my eye. Oh. And there was some blood. The Bulls took me past the clubhouse to the training room where the trainer stitched my eye up. Oh wow. I had to walk from the clubhouse the center court and and the players were taking their layup lines and it was just a few minutes before the game so all the nbc guys knew where i wasn't and that i was coming out they of course put an isolated camera on me you know this isn't on here they put an isolated camera on me and marv reprises his willis reed and here comes elliot <laughs> oh it's just sticky the same thing hilarious it was crazy <laughs> that was Christmas Day, and then we were so busy with NBC, I had to go to uh, the Orange Bowl, so I didn't even go home. So I had to ask the University of Miami team doctor to take the stitch out of my eye, and this guy was like this 85-year-old chubby guy with these fingers. I swear to you, I never thought uh, <laughs> I'd be scarred for life. So between the uh, Christmas week of getting the uh, the lights on me, uh, sometimes it was a little bit hairy, but it was it was fun. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that story too. And as you were talking about how they had that isolated camera on you, I was actually thinking back to Madison Square Garden where, uh, yeah, Marv did actually come out with that iconic line. The big question is, will Willis Reed play tonight? I think we see Willis coming out. Now, that wasn't actually the only time that you were involved where a player would actually uh, perhaps make contact with you. I think it was the 1998 Eastern Conference Finals at Indiana. Uh, Dennis Rodman, who was chasing after a loose ball, basically cleaned out half the broadcast table. Oh, my God, you are doing your research. Did Rodman touch it? The Pacers think he did. The officials don't. I guess they ruled that was an air ball, not in the cylinder, because Rodman definitely... Let's give it one, Dennis. Dennis, Drive up. I've talked with Bob about this. That's a good thing to check out on YouTube. <laughs> he fell right into my lap, right into Bob. 
Did he try to go into Bob on purpose? I don't know. Bob <laughs> might think he did. Uh, Dennis Rodman is another one. Who would have believed if you had asked me in 1998 where Dennis Rodman would be, if he would even be around now, it, I would have been amazed. But um, mm. I have so many stories. But Den uh, the, my Dennis Rodman story <laughs> is that in the book, Who's Better, Who's Best, I put him in the book over guys like Dave DeBuscher, who was one of the 50 greatest uh, named in 96. I thought he was the greatest defensive player ever. I wrote glorious things. I don't know where I put him in the book. Maybe 30th best player of all time. I get a call from his agent uh, shortly after that. It was, it was uh, had a mutual uh, acquaintance or something. And he asked me, I, I guess for a fee, Rodman would have promoted the book. And I said, no, I, I don't have any money to pay you. <laughs> but, uh, that was Dennis Rodman. You got time for a Pat Riley story? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's the next thing I was going to ask you about was just as a quick preamble. And I just absolutely love these stories. So thanks for sharing them. I was going to ask you about the NBA Showtime team, the pregame show that would air before some NBC telecasts, which Pat Riley was a part of during the 1991 season. Uh, how did it feel actually being alongside Pat, given that you were basically enthralled by that 1972 Lakers squad, which he was a part of? Excellent question and setup. <laughs> Pat Riley, uh, who was a bit player on that 72 Lakers team, he played about 13 minutes a night probably the seventh or eighth man on the team. But he was one of the guys on that team that I grew up loving, my all-time favorite team, and I knew everything about that team. So here, NBC gets the NBA, and Pat Riley and Bob Costas were going to Barcelona to do the McDonald's Open, a preseason NBA tournament, as you know. It would be Pat Riley's first uh, endeavor in television. At the time, he didn't know if he was going to be an actor like Kurt Russell and go with Hollywood, or, but he signed with us with NBC. And we didn't even know at that point in October if he'd be a game analyst or a studio analyst, which he did become on Showtime. Uh, so we have to go out to the uh, practice to watch the teams the day before. And for some reason, I think Bob was either late or couldn't make it, had other commitments. So there was a car service to pick Pat Riley and myself up and take us about 40 minutes away to the, to the site. So it's just me and Pat Riley, and I don't know him. Mm -hmm. And he starts telling me about what he wants to get accomplished in television. He wants to do a big feature on that great 72 Lakers team. So my hair stands up on end. Mm, absolutely. And he starts rattling off the guys, you know, West, Goodrich, Bill Bridges. So I say, excuse me, Pat, uh, Bill Bridges wasn't on the team that year. <laughs> I said, Leroy Ellis was the backup center. And before the next season, before the 72-73 season, Leroy Ellis and John Trapp were traded uh, and they got Bill Bridges. How did that go down? This was before you could look things up on a phone, internet. This was before we had cell phones to call somebody. <laughs> Listen, I might have been a brash know-it-all, but I also didn't want him going on television talking about it because people like me or people like you would know that Bill Bridges wasn't on that 72 Lakers team. He was on the 73 Lakers team, and he shut up the rest of the trip. Now, the next night, after the big games, there was a dinner, and Dick Eversall, who's the chairman of NBC Sports, is at the head of the table next to Riley, and I'm next to Snapper Jones, and Eversall calls out, hey, Snapper, is Elliot telling you all uh, all your teammates, too? <laughs> and I think Dick, uh, listen, this was in, in a jovial dinner, and I, he, he does have genuine affection for me. Uh, I didn't know what to make of it. I think if Pat Riley 
had to be happy that there was someone that NBC assigned that knew his team at least as well, if not better than he did, <laughs> uh, because I lived that year too. Riley went on after one year television wasn't his thing. He took the Nick job. And whenever I'd see him at Nick games or at different places at NBA events, he was always warm, respectful. Um, when he later coached the Miami Heat, I had an opportunity to hear him address his team. I talked to him afterwards and I said, Pat, you're amazing. You're so motivational. If you were a teacher, you could get to, I don't know, dozens, hundreds of kids a year, but you're talking to the same group of 12, I hate to say this, 12 millionaires. Mm -hmm. He knew what I was talking about because he, he does have a gift. You know, when they talk about the great coaches in NBA history and Phil Jackson is all this and, and he deserves everything, Phil Jackson, but Pat Riley is right there as one of the all time great coaches in NBA history. Couldn't agree more. And, and thanks again for sharing that. That's just fantastic insight to, to hear some of these things and, uh, just holding him to account, I guess, in terms of who was a teammate on a particular year. And I find that, um, that's very respectful to be able to, you've just got to, I guess, come out and say it in the, the appropriate way. I wasn't trying to show him up. The driver probably didn't even speak English, but one <laughs> player who was on that team was Will Chamberlain. And he was, uh, to me, what, what Mickey Mantle was to Bob Costas, my all time favorite growing up. And I was with Bob in Atlanta at Turner Field getting ready to work game one of the NLCS against the Mets when we got word that Will Chamberlain died. And NBC News asked Costas to do an obit, write something. So Bob writes something or rehearses it, and he, he shows it to me, and I, I vehemently tell him, while it's brilliant, he can't call him Wilt the Stilt. Uh, Wilt hated the name. He preferred Big Dipper or just Dipper. I had read enough of Wilt's stories. I had read his Wilt's books. Um, I just knew. And he took it out and didn't refer to him as Wilt the Stilt at any point in that uh, in the piece that he, he did when Chamberlain died. But again, that 72 Lakers team, everybody has a team. Chris Russo, who I work with, says every boy needs a team. Well, that 72 Lakers was my team. Did I try to take care of Wilt when he died? Did I try to take care of Pat Riley when he went into television? Yeah, I went to Gail Goodrich basketball camp. That's how much I loved that team. Um, Wilt died, I think he was only in his early 60s when he passed away. He was. Is there a particular story that stands out to do with either things that you've had to do with him or just about his on-court exploits that you can recall? You know, there are very few athletes that I've been intimidated by. And Wilt was probably one that I didn't want to go up to and interact with on the few occasions that I had a chance to. So I must say I don't have any personal interaction with Wilt Chamberlain. I do have with another NBA great, Julius Irving, because Julius, when I told you, you know, he went to UMass like I did, of course, years before I did. And I worked for the radio station, and I was the program director, sports director of the radio station, WMUA. Actually, I took a bowling class because it was taught by Julius's friend and high school coach who later who got to UMass with him, Ray Wilson, the late Ray Wilson. Wow. And so when Julius came up to the university, I think to visit Ray Wilson or maybe to be honored by something, I got a credential and I got a chance to interview him. He was the first big athlete I ever got to talk to and interview. And here I am and I'm so, you know, this is Julius Irving. I told you I was rooting for the Sixers for a and he went to UMass. And before the last question, I said, Julius, I'm sorry, one more question. And he said, that's the fourth time you've said just one more question. <laughs> <laughs> so now... 
there's a kicker to that story too. <laughs> Thirty years later, uh, my son Heath is going to Sixers basketball camp, and he's going. And one of the other campers is Julius's son. Wow. So now, by this time, although I'm not working in the NBA anymore, and my son is a huge NBA fan, obviously he's going to Sixers camp. Of course, he knows who Julius Irving is, but he doesn't believe that I know him, but I've worked with him some <laughs> at NBC, and we have friends like Bob Costas and everything. So when we see Julius, Julius couldn't have been nicer. We talk. We talk about Ray Wilson. We talk about uh, UMass. And then I said, can I have a, a picture of you with, with Heath, with my son? So he agrees. But the picture doesn't come out the way I liked. So I kept asking him for one more picture. <laughs> I keep imposing myself on Julius. What's wrong with me? But uh, Wilt, I was too intimidated to even go up to. Oh, these are just great stories. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing these. And I'm sure our listeners are going to love hearing them too. Whilst you're at NBC, you worked with a murderer's row of talent. And I've since learned that murderer's row actually refers back to the 1920s New York Yankees, who I believe are your favorite team. Um Names including Marv Albert, of course, Mike Fratello, Bob Costas. We've talked about Ahmad, uh, Hannah Storm. Hannah, I, I think the world of her. I mean, I worked with her on baseball and basketball and football and tennis in the Olympics. I got to admit, in 92, I gave up working the dream team because I wanted to be a writer on the late night studio show with Jim Lampley and Hannah Storm. Uh, but anyway, NBC eventually lost the NBA and baseball around the same time. My contract was up. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't know how to do it. Hannah had just written a book. She gave me the name of her uh, literary agent, called the woman for me. The agent uh, showed me how to write a book proposal. She got a, a, an offer, and I was able to write Who's Better, Who's Best in Basketball. Wow. And to me, that led to future books that led to everything else afterwards, writing the columns getting the job eventually at MLB Network. So I'll always be indebted to uh, to Hannah. You can't forget people that help you along the way, especially when you need it. And Hannah was certainly there for me. Oh, absolutely. She was great. I loved her on NBC. Um, a few other names that you worked with, uh, the great Bill Walton, uh, Peter Vesey, who's a friend of mine that I've actually met in person and a former guest uh, on the show. Uh, very fortunate. Doug Collins, Isaiah Thomas, and even the late Steve Snapper-Jones. I'm obviously omitting people by reeling off these names, but um, over that decade-plus run that you've had uh, at NBC there, where do you sort of rank that amongst your career to date, Elliot? In the uh, mid-'90s, we had everything. You know, in 96, 97, I was working Olympics, NBA Finals, World Series, Super Bowls. It was an embarrassment of riches and an embarrassment of riches of talent, and I can't believe I got to, to work with all of these people. Listen, Bill Walton, I didn't work with much, but I worked with him a few years. I would walk in Santa Monica, take a walk with him in the morning, a five-mile walk before he wrote about that in his diary in 2002. He let me stay at his house, sleep in the teepee. He had an Indian <laughs> teepee, and he, he drove me to the San Diego airport. And when I vacationed with my wife and small kids uh, the next year, he invited us all over for a barbecue, and I uh, knock on the door. And Greg Lee answers the door. Greg Lee was the point guard on those UCLA teams that I loved that Walton was a part of. And he, and he introduced himself as Greg Lee as if he had needed me to notice. <laughs> Bill let, uh, you know, my young kids play on the, actually the uh, drums of the Grateful Dead. And wow. uh, it was, you know, Walton is a special, special guy. I learned from all of these guys. Isaiah was one of my all-time favorites, all-time favorites. You know, in 91, our first year, the Pistons were the two-time defending champions. 
But every time it seemed they played on NBC, they lost. I don't know if they were 0-12 or 1-0, something like that. I mean, they lost the four games in the Eastern Finals. They lost the Christmas Day game. But I remember seeing Isaiah and Lane Beer in a bad sportsmanship walk off the court in game four. And Isaiah always had that that competition with Jordan. He froze him out of the 85 All-Star game. Isaiah was from Chicago, but they hated him in Chicago because he played for the Pistons. Let me tell you something. I, I always thought it was terrible that Isaiah wasn't part of the dream team. I mean, here's a guy. Look, I mean, I know why. I know everything. They needed Jordan. Jordan didn't want to play with Isaiah. Jordan was an Olympian, had that experience, played in 84. Isaiah would have. He was an 80 Olympian, but the team had the plug pulled by President Jimmy Carter. The U.S. didn't compete in 80. If anybody should have been on the dream team with Chuck Daly, the Pistons head coach, it should have been, it should have been Zeke. But I remember working with Zeke and Jordan in 98 hits the shot against Utah and he retires. We didn't know he'd come back at the time. And people were saying they thought it was a perfect end to a career, a storybook ending. And Isaiah says, no, a storybook ending for a truly great athlete is to be carried off because a great athlete won't walk. Isaiah, if you remember, tore his Achilles tendon in April 94. I don't think he ever played again. That was a perfect ending to Isaiah. Did he say that because he thought that really was a perfect ending for an athlete? I've always thought of that. When an athlete's career ends in an injury, maybe that is a, a natural death for an athlete. I just learned so much from Isaiah. So competitive. There were certain athletes that Jordan, Jimmy Connors in tennis, you know, Pete Rose was like this. There were so many. Isaiah, uh, among the most competitive people in the world, you can't imagine someone wanting to win more, whether it's a table tennis or basketball or succeeding in business. I take things from everybody. I don't know if I can name a favorite sport or a favorite year or a favorite personality because it's all there. It all adds up, you know? Yeah, I do. And uh, thanks again for elaborating there. Can I ask you about one particular game, the 1992 NBA Finals, Game 1? In the Chicago Tribune, I read an article from that time, and I'm paraphrasing, but it talked about the success of NBC's NBA Finals telecasts due in large part to the statistical graphics And the case in point they used was that as Game 6 unfolded, there was a graphic that went up that showed the Bulls had the lead for 78% of the minutes played. Um, In Game 1 of the 92 finals, uh, of course, you'll well know, Jordan went berserk, uh, scored 35 points in the first half, hit six three-pointers. This is pre-internet. I don't know how you were actually doing this at the time, but how, how frenzied were you and the team behind the scenes as Jordan his point tally was increasing at a rate of knots and he was just breaking record after record. How did you keep up and then get those stats to Marv uh, at the right times? Well, first of all, when we started the NBA, it was a very different league than when I left it 12, 13 years later. It was a lot easier in the last few years when everything was posting and reposting. You know, I think in our first year in 91, the top team might have averaged 120 points a game and every team but one averaged 100. It was a little frenetic, <laughs> especially because computers were at the early stage. Sometimes you just had to, to uh, be very, very quick and, and catch up later at a timeout. So what I remember about that 92 game one, Jordan is as bewildered as the rest of us, and he makes his famous shrug yeah. to 
<laughs> Magic is sitting next to me, and he's looking to Magic. And, like, he had just played Magic in the finals a few months earlier, and he shrugs at Magic. And Magic, who's new to TV, I'm nudging Magic. Look, look, you know, look what Michael <laughs> is, is trying to get your attention. That's what I remember most about that. Pretty special. When I say that you were in Chicago Stadium, and I hope you heard Ray Clay in the, in the introductions, all five of your senses, the, the smell, I could smell that stadium. I could see it. I could hear it. The noise was just incredible, something to see. And I also remember the 91 finals, which is forgotten of Jordan's six finals. Again, there are some series, seven-game series, that don't get the credit in, in baseball, too, because five-game series. But that 91 final, if I tell you the excitement in L.A. and those North Carolina products and, and you had Perkins winning a game and then Jordan in game two, like 15 of 18 with the spectacular move, as Marv described it, and uh, Paxson going eight for eight down the stretch in, I think, game five. Um, that was special, too. But they were all special. That 92 game one, you're right. That's uh, It's about as good as it gets. Incredible. And again, thanks so much for sharing. Um, the book that we've been talking about on and off, it's called Who's Better? Who's best in basketball? Mr. Stats sets the record straight on the top 50 NBA players of all time. One of the reviews I read of the book uh, says that you accomplished your ultimate goal to spark a debate that has no definitive answer. Um, you basically brought together opinions of players, coaches, uh, media, uh, super fans, including your own anecdotes and plenty of facts and stats, etc. Uh, and you revised the list of the 50 greatest players that was announced back in 1997 at the All-Star Game, which we were talking about. Now, your top five players in order, Shaquille O'Neal, Wilt Chamberlain, Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Do you recall how fans reacted at the time when the book was released? You know, I was very encouraged years later when Bill Simmons wrote his book of basketball and named mine one of the most useful books. Mine was a little paperback ranking book, but it became a lot more than that. It led to so much. So here I had a little fun taking some of the players out and putting others in and then betting on the come, betting that Shaquille O'Neal, who would win another title after I had written the book. Shaq's teams, he was really a postseason marvel. He eliminated Jordan's Bulls in 95 and Akeem's Rockets in 99 and Duncan's Spurs in 2001 and 2004. He still is one of the greatest postseason performers of all time. It was so much better than others. I know he'd only won the one MVP. But I knew it would spark. Nobody would get attention if I made Jordan number one. So I had Wilt number two and Jordan three. And, and then Kareem, who it still bothers me to this day that he, you know, he's, he's only number four. But what, what are you going to do? Kareem and, and Russell, four of the five are big guys. And then you had the bird magic. And it was hard to separate them. I think I put magic ahead. But generally, people enjoyed the book and enjoyed uh, debating me, which is what I wanted. That's the goal of it. Have you actually had a chance to consider uh, where you might rank LeBron James, given that his rookie season was the year that it was released? If I tell you that I wrote a golf book 15 years ago and had Tiger Woods number one, and I wrote a baseball book around the same time, and I had Barry Bonds number one, I bet you can figure out that I would name LeBron James number one. I think LeBron would have to be number one. He's been great for the game, for the league. It's so hard having seen Michael Jordan and seeing all these great players that we've been talking about. But let's face it, I think at this point, uh, no one would argue if you, if you say LeBron James. Fair call indeed. Um, now, the last question I'll ask you, and this literally is the last question, 
Basketball Digest had a regular feature which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. Now, is there one game from your career, uh, as far as ones that you've attended in person, that you could say was the absolute best? It's putting on the spot, given you've seen hundreds of games over the years. It can be any sport. There's too many. There, there's a couple of Super Bowls. There's a couple of the Michael Jordan games. There's that 88 World Series Game 1, and there's there's some great regular season games. Um, I'll tell you a weekend I never forgot. So the book comes out, Who's Better, Who's Best? And it comes out in November of 2003, and I'm working Monday night football games for Westwood One with Marv Albert. And I was very lucky that there was a game a few days before Christmas. It was a Monday night football game in Oakland. So I'm going to be out in Oakland, and the next day the Lakers were playing at Golden State. So I uh, called the Lakers and got a ticket to the Warriors game for that Tuesday, explaining to the John Black, the PR guy for the Lakers, that if at all possible, I wanted to give Shaq a copy of my book. First of all, that Monday night football game was the game Brett Favre passed for 399 yards and four touchdowns a day after his father's death. Very emotional game. One of the great football games, regular season that you'll ever see. And then the next night I'm in Oakland. They take me into the... uh, credentialed into the locker room and I give the book to Shaq. He's going to start signing it. And I said, no, (laughs) no, this isn't for me. I want to give this to you. (laughs) He was really touched. I think I gave him a couple of copies and he gave one to a friend. He put his arm around me and his friend. These are the kinds of things that stay with you. It's human relationships. It's, hey, here's a guy who all his life, he's being asked for stuff, sign this, do this. And I just wanted to give him the book because I know he'd probably heard about it and been teased and razzed about it. I know Charles certainly done that with him with the book. So uh, I don't know. There's so many games. I remember going as a kid with with my dad to one of the games of the 72 NBA Finals and the 72 All-Star game that I went to as a kid that Jerry West was the MVP in his home stadium. Again, there's there's just so many. That's a great answer. And sometimes I've asked that question and I guess just can't name one. So, And that's just from their own career of playing in one sport. You've been covering multiple sports over numerous decades. So I appreciate the, uh, the answer. You asked me about my most memorable games in the 12-year uh, ride that I took with NBC on the NBA on NBC. And there were really three. Only one was a regular season game. And that was the game that Michael Jordan made his long-awaited return to the league. I wasn't originally supposed to work that game. I was working for NBC all year round, not just NBA season. I know the NBA playoffs were coming up. And so I wanted to take something in March when the weather is nice. And I don't really like Indianapolis as a, as a city that I would extend or make a vacation plan. I didn't like it that much at the time. Anyway, it's a, it's a really charming city, actually. But I chose that week to take off. And then all of a sudden, as we get closer, Michael Jordan not only is going to make his return, he's going to make it at Market Square Arena. Uh, I think it was March 19th, 95. And I had a vacation scheduled and I quickly canceled the vacation. And I said, don't worry, I'm going to be at this game. I wouldn't miss it. And uh, most people in America, it was the highest rated regular season game in the 12 year run, I think, of of NBC. It it did almost an 11 rating, 11% of the televisions on incredible for a regular season game. I just remember so much about it. The week before, I contacted Bob Green, the columnist and author who was friendly with Michael Jordan, had written a couple of books like Hang Time and and eventually Rebound uh, on his friendship with Michael Jordan. He was uh, from the Chicago Tribune. And I called him up, asked him his address. I sent him. I compared the dialogue that I heard from sports writers and Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson 
as to when and how Michael Jordan would return with the French uh, existential play Waiting for Godot. <laughs> and Bob Green used it in his book a year later uh, and credited me. And, and uh, so, again, it's, it's not always numbers. Sometimes it's um, everything going on in the world. But I remembered in my lead up to that game, I knew most of the focus would be on the Bulls and how they'd react to playing with Michael Jordan and Jordan himself. So I made it my business to delve even further into the Indiana Pacers. They weren't going to be some anonymous opponent. These guys were a terrific championship caliber ball club, and I wanted to get as much information to Marv and the production crew. And it was the week that Antonio Davis had twins. I was all prepared, and I gave Marv this information. And Marv goes, uh, that's great. What's the name of the uh, twins? And without missing a beat, I said, Dick and Tom Van Arsdale. <laughs> um, I like that. <laughs> I think Marv may have even used that. It's stupid <sighs> things like that you remember. And then Reggie Miller, who I would later work with with Marv on TNT telecast, came out so inspired in that game. And I think he had 10 points in the first quarter. And uh, then Pippen took over and Jordan was off. But I really, as a statistician, everything I gave Marv, if he missed his first three, if he missed his first four, if he missed things that I normally wouldn't do, how many minutes Jordan is playing, almost at every juncture, you could not give enough information on this telecast about Michael Jordan, who was a, a little rusty. It wasn't like the 55-point effort he put up a few games later against the Knicks, but it certainly was the most memorable regular season game that I can uh, recall in the NBA. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Thanks for elaborating. Um, here in Australia, just to give you some idea of the impact that game had, Within 24 hours from the game actually being played, it was aired here on Australian television. So that's said a fair bit, given that we only got one game a week at best. Uh, this is just prior to the advent of paid television across most of Australia. So, yeah, a massive game. And, uh, yeah, to be a part of that, um, absolutely fantastic. And, yeah, obviously you've cancelled your plans to uh, <laughs> vacation. I didn't mind. In terms of the information that you provided that Bob Green would later use in his book, um, I guess that sort of speaks to how well-read and uh, well-versed you are across the arts. You've obviously got some other interests outside of sports, clearly. I think you have to. These games aren't being done in a vacuum. Just last night, I worked a baseball game with Bob Costas, and it was the one-year anniversary of the Category 5 hurricane making landfall in Puerto Rico, and the Red Sox manager, Alex Cora, is from Puerto Rico. So I'm giving Bob some information on it. Hmm. It just adds a texture. It just adds so much to the telecast because there's other things going on in the lives of these athletes, of the fan bases. Again, it's storytelling. A perfect use case. Now, as I told you, I think I covered uh, 66 NBA Finals games courtside. And some of them in the halcyon days of the NBA were some of the greatest games ever. And I'm not going to belittle any of them, but to me, two of the most memorable were Game 7s in Western Conference Finals, one of them in the year 2000. The Lakers, and I told you I grew up a Laker fan. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get back to the finals for the first time since 91, my first year covering the finals for NBC. They won 67 games. Shaq, who had been denied for his first couple of years in LA, not because he was necessarily bad. Injuries played a part. Some of the great teams in Utah and San Antonio played a part. But all of a sudden, everything comes together in the year 2000. And yet the Lakers are pushed to a deciding game five against Sacramento in the first round. And they finally get to the Western Conference Finals. 
and they take a 3-1 lead against Portland. They lose game five in L.A., and they lose six back in Portland. So now we're at game seven in L.A. It's just that rare game. And for people who want to know why I wrote the book and made Shaq number one, you should have seen both this game and the following game I'm going to describe. Shaq and Kobe played all 48 minutes. It was one of the great fourth quarter comebacks. Brian Shaw, who went four for four from three-point range in this game, hit a three-pointer at the end of the third quarter. I mean, the Lakers were down 16 points late in the third and 15 entering the fourth quarter. Mm. I mean, Pippen played out of his mind against his former coach, Phil Jackson. Shaq and Kobe were terrific down the stretch. It was so loud. And it's one of those games the Lakers would go on and win the finals against the Pacers, of course, for the first of three in a row. For some reason, that game seven just sticks out in my mind as so mesmerizing. As soon as you mentioned that playoff series, I've gone to basketballreference.com and had a look. Uh, The Lakers outscored Portland 31-13 in the fourth quarter. They were basically on the precipice of making the finals. a monumental uh, collapse, I guess, and then the Lakers-inspired play uh, got them over the line in the end. But, yeah, some fantastic memories from that series for sure. I watched that series, not just that game, but that series in Portland throughout the year, and I only wish I could have seen Arvidas Sabonis at the peak of his career because even when it wasn't the peak, not that he could handle Shaq in in that playoff series, but what a tremendous player he was. It was a great battle. But as great a playoff series as that was, 2002, the Western Conference Finals between Sacramento and L.A. was probably even better. Game six was the one that the Lakers needed, and they had some phantom calls go their way, and and, uh, Scott Pollard and Vlade Divac were incredulous at some calls that that fouled them out of the game. Even though uh, that happened, Shaq was 13-17 from the line in game six. But anyway, here we get to game seven, and Sacramento has the game at home, Arco Arena. And I loved going to Sacramento. I never thought I would, uh, but it was, again, a charming town and a small arena where everyone was compacted and the sound was on top of the court. It was bigger than life. And in that game, I remember you saw a couple of guys not being able to handle the big moment, and that really was the difference I think uh, Doug Christie uh, was two for 11, had some terrible shots down the stretch. Peja Stojakovic uh, had an air ball with a chance to win in the last couple of seconds in regulation, if I can uh, recall. And I remember throughout the game giving um, Bill Walton, who was doing color commentating, that Bobby Jackson should be in there. He's, every time he's in, the, the, you know, the, the spark plug, he's hitting shots all over the place. They went back to Doug Christie probably a little too much. But again, if you look at Shaq, I think he made 11 of 15 free throws in that game. He had 35 points. And, you know, they would play the Nets in the final, which was bittersweet. Number one, I was a Nets fan, mm. uh, hometown team. And number two was the last series of NBC's run. But the Western Conference finals on network TV with a huge audience and the very real prospect of Sacramento stealing this series, which they did not. A lot of people say it was fixed. I don't know about that. I remember watching it live, the whole thing play out in real time, and I thought, there's just no answer for Shaquille O'Neal. There's just no way that you can stop him. No way that these guys, Lawrence Funderburk and, and Scott Pollard, and they looked like half the size, and they were half the size. You know, if it wasn't for Mike Bibby, who made big shot after big shot after big shot in that game seven, going mano a mano with Kobe, 
it was like one of those great Game 7 scenarios from an earlier generation, uh, Dominique and, uh, and Bird. But Bibby really played a, a hell of a game. And I thought that Sacramento team would contend and, and do more in the years afterwards, and they didn't. But, boy, Chris Weber, I thought, you know, I never saw Elvin Hayes. But when I wrote in the book, I, I said Weber at the time, he's replacing Elvin Hayes, whatever spot Elvin Hayes has in the top 50 or whatever it is. He had a terrific series. And it's just a shame that he didn't win a, a ring. I think they would have beaten New Jersey, although it would have been fun to see Bibby and, and Jay Kidd. Oh, absolutely. The Lakers would win their third in a row. You asked me my memorable games, and I think those are three. Uh, the Jordan returning and the fourth quarter comeback in Game 7. Nothing like a Game 7 in sports, I'll tell you, and especially in the NBA and some of these uh, with these great champions. Yeah, high stakes and uh, the, the big-time players step up when it's most needed. Just quickly, you mentioned about uh, how this 2002 playoff run would then be the conclusion of NBC's coverage of the NBA as far as that current rights deal went. Um, there was a really great uh, outro that played at the end of the 2002 finals. How did you guys all react as a crew once that curtain finally came down on NBC's coverage? You know, it was devastating to me and a number of others, like the director, Andy Rosenberg, and, and it was really the bread and butter of what we did at NBC. Uh it was bittersweet, that finals uh, between the, uh, the Lakers and the Nets. I didn't want to get off the carousel. I liked covering the NBA from that vantage point year after year. Sometimes you need that to kick you in the pants and, and make you go a different direction. I know I did, but that's how I would describe it. There is a Bob Costas quote that's on the back of your basketball book, and it reads, Whatever the issue or debate in sports, Mr. Stats has more than just the facts. And, of course, you've backed that up beautifully over the course of our conversation with weaving in all these different stories and tales in amongst the numbers themselves. Um, what do you think it was that made him such an outstanding and continues to, to this day, of course, uh, outstanding talent in the world of broadcasting? Number one is the teamwork that television has. Unlike when I write a book, and even that is, is elements of teamwork, but we were blessed at NBC Sports to have producers, Tommy Roy at the beginning, Mark Wolf in the middle of the run, and David Neal, all of whom have done things like Olympics and Super Bowls and the biggest sporting events and television events in the world, um, produce these games and make the telecast and make the announcers as good as humanly possible. And there were none better. When Bob Costas replaced Marv as the primary play-by-play -play voice for NBC for the 98 season, David Neal in one of his first meetings with the crew said, Marv may be the greatest NBA announcer of all time, but Bob is the best TV broadcaster in the business. Mm. This is bigger than just basketball. It's just bigger than the NBA. This is primetime network television. And he was right. Every event felt like a big event with Costas doing it. He gave it a credibility. He gave it a gravitas. And not that we didn't have fun. We did. I'll give you some examples. 1998, our first season, Bob's doing the game with Isaiah Thomas. He gets handed a um, card, a promo to read, and play-by-play -play announcers read dozens of promos. In the case of ones who have worked for decades, hundreds and thousands of promos. So Bob reads a promo. This one for the Discovery Channel had an animal special that aired on NBC. And Bob reads it. And Isaiah, all of a sudden, who's new to the business, Isaiah, just pops into his head. He says, you know, those animals in the jungle, they, they eat other animals raw. <laughs> and Bob says, almost without blinking, and usually without condiments. 
<laughs> it's so hard to find ketchup in the jungle or mustard when you need it. And that is such a, a great, I remember laughing, sitting next to them. It's an icebreaker. It makes you remember the promo to this day, 20 years later, whatever it is. But uh, the, the other thing I told you, Bob, I remember he went on Craig Kilborn's uh, late night show and uh, around this time or a year or two later, because at this point we're working with Doug Collins. And Craig Kilborn, the late night host, and Bob get into a discussion of baseball home run calls where the announcers make up a call that has nothing to do with sports. I can't even think of examples, but they say random things and it becomes known as their call. And Craig said, uh, if I give you one of these random phrases, could you work it into an NBA telecast? And Bob said, sure. So Craig said, I want you to say, work in to a broadcast, that's restaurant quality lemonade. <laughs> How are you going to get that's restaurant quality lemonade into an NBA game? <sighs> Bob agrees. And the next week we're in LA again. And LA is, as I told you, there's huge Hollywood stars. But one of the biggest stars 20 years ago, Dustin Hoffman. Right. Somehow Bob got Dustin Hoffman to go in on this little joke or prank. So Without anybody realizing it, Bob Costas and Doug Collins are doing their stand-up at halftime. And as Doug is speaking, Dustin Hoffman comes from behind, gives Costas a glass of juice. Bob takes a sip and he goes, that's restaurant quality lemonade. And, <laughs> and he later went back on Kilbourne and showed the, the clip. But uh, So we have a lot of fun with Bob. And if you watch Bob sum up, games and series and moments there is none better he is not only a skilled writer but he has an amazing memory he knows when to call up the memory at the right time he's a wordsmith he knows how to get everything across the way he wants to get it across so many times i can't tell you and i've been working with him for decades now and it's still fun it's still an enjoyable experience and you still learn from him He's the best in the business, the best there ever was. Yeah, that speaks volumes. And thank you so much for sharing some of those stories. Um, I'm just thinking in my mind, I wonder if that Craig Kilborn uh, clip is somewhere on YouTube. I'm going to have to start searching for that. That's fantastic. I have no idea, but if you can find it, I'd love to hear it too. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll definitely try to track that one down. Now, Elliot, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for chatting to some guy in Australia. Uh, it's been great to have you on the show, and uh, I hope that one day I can bring you back on and we can talk a bit more old-school basketball. Anytime, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Leave a voicemail. Simply visit inallairness.com slash voice. Click Start Recording. Leave a message and press Stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send and you're done. Time now to share another great review. In this case, actually two reviews from a fan of the show. Thanks to Gabriel the Don on Apple Podcasts in the USA. The first one reads, I love this podcast. Keep them going, mate. Second review repeats the first and then adds, by the way, if you see Adam, give him a hug for me. <laughs> Thank you, Gabriel. Much appreciated, mate. Thank you for adding those reviews. Worldwide, the show currently has upwards of 75 reviews on iTunes. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. And as I do like to say, if you enjoy the show, please do tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are truly worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my email newsletter. 
You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply visit inolanus.com slash news. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. Search for In All Airness, three words, on your podcast app of choice. The show is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Android, Pocket Casts, and more. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.